In 2006, the celebrities you saw on tabloid magazine covers were pretty much running on repeat. Lindsay Lohan was always good for a headline. Tom Cruise and Katie Holmes were busy intriguing and kind of freaking people out with their love story. Denise Richards and Charlie Sheen were splitting up, and so were Jessica Simpson and Nick Lachey. On the swankier side of the print equation, George Clooney, Julia Roberts, Terry Hatcher, and Hilary Swank all graced the cover of Vanity Fair. The internet was howling with celeb news, too. That year, Perez Hilton was getting 2.5 million hits on his site per day. The celebrity internet was becoming well-established as the wave of the future. But many people saw a hole in all the coverage. Black celebrities were everywhere in American pop culture. Why weren't they being covered by mainstream celebrity news? I knew that there were tons of people that were TMZ and Perez Hilton readers that wanted to know more about Beyonce and Rihanna and some of the other African-American celebrities, but they just weren't doing a great job covering. This is Fred. My name is Fred Mwanga-Gahunga. I'm the founder and editor of MediaTakeout.com. Media Takeout, which started in 06, was a staple of the Wild West blogscape of the mid to late 2000s. Bossip, which started the same year, was too. Originally, the, the tone was really like kind of go hard, like the tagline back in the day was like, Henny without any Coke or something like that. You know what I mean? <laughs> That's Marv. I am Marv McLean. Back in the good old heydays of the internet, I was the CEO of Bossip.com. Like Perez before them, both Marv and Fred were responsible for a lot of the initial writing that appeared on Bossip and Media Takeout. These were small operations. And neither Marv nor Fred was exactly your likely fit for the job of blogger. Fred, for instance, was a lawyer with an MBA and JD from Columbia who saw a business opportunity waiting to be exploited. The origin story of Bossip is remarkably similar. Marv's friend from college, Jamarlin Martin, was writing a currency trading blog when he noticed that celeb news was getting hot online and decided to drastically shift the content of his website. He literally hit me up on MySpace and he was saying, hey, I have this website and I need your help. And we knew each other from college. We actually lived in the same building my freshman year at college. So I was just like, oh, that's kind of cool that you have that going on. But, you know, I don't really care about celebrities. I don't really, you know, know much about any of that world or whatever. And he's like, yeah, I don't think that that matters. I just remember you being funny and smart. So, you know, we can work it out. So I was like, all right, cool, let's do it. <laughs> they did it. By 2007, Bossip was getting millions of unique visitors a month. And Media Takeout was second only to Perez Hilton as the most searched gossip blog by Yahoo users. That's back when a lot of people actually still used Yahoo. They were following Jay-Z and Beyonce breakup rumors, rumors of Jay-Z's exit from Def Jam Records, T.I.'s arrest on gun charges, and suggestive photos potentially digitally altered, of Paris Hilton and singer CeeLo Green. Black artists dominated American music charts. Black athletes dominated American sports leagues. And Black fashion's influence made its way into designer collections. Author Steve Stout wrote a whole book, The Tanning of America, that makes a pretty compelling case for the broad economic influence of hip-hop and Black culture on wider American society. But Hollywood, and in turn the celebrity media that covered it, has long been super white. And that mainstream white celebrity media largely focused on the stars of movies and TV. Their definition of celebrity and who was worth covering was a lot narrower before the Vox Populi forces of the internet started weighing in on who they wanted to hear about. The internet changed things radically for Black celebrity media, and to some extent, Black Hollywood. It brought the kind of insouciant coverage that legacy Black media like Ebony, Essence, and Jet just didn't do. Black blogs started competing with mainstream tabloids in ways that made people sit up and take notice, which helped initiate a market correction that would eventually make its way into mainstream media. Black celebrity coverage could be successful if only you tried it. From The Ringer, I'm Claire Malone, and this is Just Like Us, the tabloids that changed America. This episode is brought to you by eBay Authenticity Guarantee. You'll know real when you get it. 
It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee, and you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewelry that makes you look like the gem. Sneakers and streetwear so fresh, every step feels fly. When it comes to style and luxury, eBay gets it. They're making sure the things you love are checked by experts. Not just any experts, specialized experts, real people who love this stuff, with real hands-on authentication experience. So when you see that shiny blue checkmark that says Authenticity Guarantee, shop with confidence. Every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is verified authentic through a detailed inspection. That's how you know that eBay's got your back. Because when you finally step into those sneakers, put on that watch, get your real gold glow up, swing that handbag over your shoulder, or step out in that streetwear, you'll realize that feeling is unlike any other. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of reals always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit JiffyLube.com. A thing I think about an awful lot working in media is the importance of its gatekeepers. Of course, every industry has them. But in lots of those professions, there are also boards or exams to pass. You have to prove yourself against some set standard. In journalism, it's mostly about connections. Who you interned for, who you were assistant to, who you went to college with. That's how you get jobs a lot of the time. Nowhere was that more true than in the magazine world of New York or the movie world of Hollywood at the turn of the century. And the inside was made up of a lot of people who thought of the same people as celebrities, whose cultural touchstones were shared, and whose beauty standards had all been shaped by similar environments. Because before we talk about how the internet upended traditional media and institutions, we have to talk about the way those traditional institutions traditionally functioned. Here's Dodi Stewart, the former Jezebel writer that you met last episode. She was the one who wrote facetiously about her love-hate relationship with Anna Winter in her job application. I wrote my letter to this anonymous organization as though I was writing to Anna Winter, and it was like, I hate Vogue. There's everyone so thin and rich, and there's no people of color, but I still buy it anyway. Love Dodi or whatever. Dodi, who was a magazine lover all her life, wanted to work for one of the big Condé Glossies, even if she knew that they had lots of problems. Namely, that there wasn't much diversity to speak of inside their offices. Dodi, what you just said is in 2021, so, like, conventional wisdom, yeah. right? Yeah, How did it feel when you were writing it, though, like, in that year? That I was saying something that people say, but, but you're not supposed to say, really. And or that, didn't say. Yeah, and it didn't say. I, I mean, I felt like it was a kind of thing that, well, I felt like if you're like a journalist of color, then you knew that and you, and you talked about it. That other voice belongs to Anna Holmes, the founding editor of Jezebel, who you also met last episode. By the way, I should mention here that Dodai is now a deputy editor at The New York Times, and Anna is the creative director for Barack and Michelle Obama's production company, Higher Ground. So both of these women are doing very well in and out of traditional media. But the sting of their early years in media is still all too easy to recall. You know, I worked for Glamour, which was part of Condé Nast, and so I was very hyper-aware of what the demographic makeup was in that building. And I think that Dodai's point about it not being talked about, but everybody knew it, there was no forum, no public forum, with which 
one could complain about this stuff. So there was a feeling for me that we were being gaslit. <laughs> it's like there's this world being constructed and promoted in multiple magazines. And yet you're walking out the door of your office and experiencing a completely different world. For full disclosure, my current employer, The New Yorker, is a Condé Nast publication. In her analog Condé Nast days, Anna worked at Bonnie Fuller's version of Glamour. As in, Bonnie Fuller, who made Us Weekly into a cultural juggernaut. Stars, they're just like us, Bonnie. Anna called Bonnie's magazines very white. And white was sort of the default in media. Still is. There wasn't necessarily a sense of urgency that publications needed to diversify their coverage. If anything, people seemed to think that there were a couple Black publications that would take care of Black celebrity coverage. Here's Dodi again. In my desperate search for, like, uh, some kind of entry into, like, a real career, I was often asked, like, well, why don't you work at, like, Ebony or Essence or something? As though, like, if you're Black, like, that's the, that's your only, you know, like, go work in the in the ghetto. Like, segregate yeah. yourself. No, seriously. Like, I'm not saying yeah, those magazines no. are... But it was like, what about the, like, mainstream? Like, I, I felt like that was bad career advice. Bad career advice because prestigious as they were, Ebony and Essence didn't have the same broad cultural power as Vanity Fair, GQ, Vogue, Entertainment Weekly, or In Style. Anna's experience was slightly different from Dodi's. We could probably have a whole discussion about, like, colorism within magazine industry and, like, the fact that, see, I wasn't told those things. I wasn't told to go work for, or suggest, it wasn't suggested I go work for Ebony or Essence because I didn't read as Black, right? That's a whole other thing. Like, there are times where I'm like, maybe I only had the magazine career that I did because I was of indeterminate ethnicity. Um, and so white people felt comfortable around me. Like, I definitely have had those moments where I've thought that. And, you know, that's not something that makes me feel very good. It should be noted that traditional Black media played an important part in helping diversify glossy media during that era. When Latina Magazine's founder, Christy Haubegger, was trying to get the publication off the ground, she turned to the founders of Essence for help. Here's Sylvia Martinez, former editor-in-chief of Latina. She thought if anyone would be... Um would understand the mission and the goal that it would be um, the founders of Essence Magazine, and she was right. And so Essence Magazine gave her $5 million to launch uh, Latina Magazine that year. Anyhow, Anna and Dodi weren't the only people in the media Hollywood nexus to fixate on how shockingly white things were. 3,000 miles away from Condé's New York offices, Franklin Leonard started his Hollywood career as an assistant at CAA, one of the biggest talent agencies in town. So I show up in 2003, Black Kid, West Central Georgia, dreadlocks, um, and looking around, Hollywood doesn't look a lot like America. Um, Hollywood doesn't even look a lot like Los Angeles. Um, Hollywood doesn't even look a lot like Harvard, if we're being totally real. But Franklin was there to learn the ropes. And if you're going to work in Hollywood, as much as you may love the art of filmmaking, you quickly learn that the town is all about the business side of things. You know, I entered a business that, you know, everyone said, the only color that matters is green Franklin. And then you'd say, okay, well, here's this great black movie that we should make. Well, black movies don't sell internationally. Okay, the only color that matters is green. Here's a great female-driven action movie. Mm, female-driven action movies don't work, right? Like, these are, these are things that I was told over and over and over again. Franklin, like any other assistant, was trying to stand out from the crowd to prove he could predict what the next big moneymaker could be. It's not like he was just pushing Black or female-centric movies. He wanted to compete to tell executives what the next great indie drama starring Leo would be. Still... It bothered him that people took such a narrow view of what movies could work. And it honestly didn't make a lot of business sense to him either. I remember making the joke in, in, in 2004, 2005 that, like, Crest 
toothpaste knows more about its customers than the film industry does knows about its audience. Because the film industry would say, well, there's, there's four quadrants, you know, roughly divided into over 25, under 25, male, female. Basically, you want to you want to try to get a get a four quadrant movie that everybody can go see. But the only like the, the sort of fundamental tenets of a four quadrant movie were it had a male star, right, um, and that it was a big action movie, and they probably most of the people, if not everybody, was white. Those were just the default assumptions, and anything that you were trying to get made that that wasn't built around that basic plan was assumed to be deeply flawed and assumed to be limited in its upside. Franklin pointed to the fact that Paramount let its option lapse on female-driven Twilight, that Warner Brothers considered sending Slumdog Millionaire, set in India, straight to DVD, and that most studios passed on The Hunger Games, a franchise with a female protagonist. Most Hollywood people were, and still are, white guys who'd gone to school at similar places and lived and socialized in similar Los Angeles neighborhoods. Here's Franklin describing your typical screenwriter. White dude, Ivy educated or USC, UCLA, probably lived on the east side of Los Angeles, very obsessed with Quentin Tarantino movies. Franklin thought that dynamic exacerbated blind spots. It made people unable to see the money-making potential of different kinds of projects. Take the rise of Tyler Perry, back in around 2005, when his first movie, Diary of a Mad Black Woman, opened. So I grew up in West Central Georgia, right? Like, I remember Tyler's plays coming to town, uh, being advertised on local television, and all of the church aunties, like, lining up to go see those plays. And I remember it specifically because when I arrived in Hollywood, there was one, there was one black agent at, at William Morris named Charles King. And he represented Tyler and a lot of other black talent. Franklin got a coveted meeting with King, and they ended up talking about Tyler Perry's new movie. He's like, how do you think this, that his movie's going to do this weekend? I, I think it was the week, it was like the Thursday before Tyler's first movie came out. And I remember thinking like, yeah, it's going to make a lot of money. It's going to surprise a lot of people. And he's like, that's what I think too. And no one, no one else realized that it's, that it's about to happen. The movie made nearly $22 million its opening weekend. The Hollywood trade press was like, who could have predicted? And, you know, it was like any black person from the South is sort of the answer. A lot of the underestimating of black market share was a sheer lack of attention, a.k.a. being bad at your job, and a strong belief in calcified conventional wisdom. Franklin remembers being on a 2004 conference call pumping up staff for the second weekend of Win a Date with Tad Hamilton, starring Topher Grace and Josh Jumel. Someone said, well, what else is coming out this weekend? And, and someone with a great deal of condescension was like, I don't know, some urban movie called You've Got Served. Um, but, but like, we don't have to worry about that. And I remember texting my boss or like, you know, I mean my boss at the time saying, y'all should probably worry about that. You Got Served, a dance competition movie starring Steve Harvey and Omarion, the lead singer of the boy band B2K, made $16 million that weekend and went on to gross over $50 million worldwide. When a Date with Tad Hamilton only ended up grossing $21 million worldwide, and its production cost nearly three times as much as You Got Served. You can see where some of the frustration came from. What Franklin has become best known for in Hollywood is his creation in 2005 of something called The Blacklist. That's a nod to the anti-communist purges of Hollywood in the late 1940s and 1950s. The Blacklist is an annual list of the best-liked, unproduced screenplays of each year. At its heart, the list has become about busting up some of that USC-UCLA dude conventional wisdom about what kind of movies make money— from the outset, it produced way more female-written projects, though it's only recently started to see more racial diversity. Hollywood, remember, is still really white. Franklin credits both the Blacklist creation and its success to the same thing that Anna and Dodi talk about when they talk Jezebel. It was the internet that made it all possible. The thing that defines Hollywood in the 2000s for me is technology. 
but but not just the the technology that we see in terms of like how movies get made but in terms of how people shared information right the blacklist happened only because i was able to email a large number of people and they were comfortable enough with email to then respond it broke the traditional hierarchies that were keeping the same kinds of scripts at the top of the heap And then the other thing I'd say on the flip side of that is it has empowered audiences to communicate with each other about what they love, to communicate directly with the industry about what they love, and more importantly, to communicate with the industry about what they hate. For years prior to 2000, you know, everything was was intermediated by a media that looked more like Hollywood than it did the audience. That media, white, traditional, not many fresh voices, but the internet would give black bloggers some room to operate. This episode is brought to you by eBay Authenticity Guarantee. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee, and you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewelry that makes you look like the gem. Sneakers and streetwear so fresh, every step feels fly. When it comes to style and luxury, eBay gets it. They're making sure the things you love are checked by experts. Not just any experts, specialized experts. Real people who love this stuff. With real, hands-on authentication experience. So when you see that shiny blue checkmark that says, Authenticity Guarantee, shop with confidence. Every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is verified authentic through a detailed inspection. That's how you know that eBay's got your back. Because when you finally step into those sneakers, put on that watch, get your real gold glow up, swing that handbag over your shoulder, or step out in that streetwear, you'll realize that feeling is unlike any other. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. This episode is brought to you by cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus. View its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. This episode is brought to you by Atlassian. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence, and Trello help power global collaboration for all teams so they can accomplish everything that's impossible alone. Because individually, we're great, but together, we're so much better. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com, A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com, Atlassian. Tap the banner or visit this episode's page to learn more. Fred Mwanga Gahunga is also on the The Internet Changed Everything bandwagon. Especially in the early years of the site, Media Takeout was covering Black celebrities as closely and as intimately as mainstream outlets covered white stars. They reported that Queen Latifah would announce her engagement to her girlfriend, something the star, who has largely avoided addressing her dating life, denied. They tracked Beyonce pregnancy rumors, along with ones about NBA star Kevin Garnett's love life. And a broader segment of the population than you might expect was being exposed to those celebrity stories. Racially, it was, at least in the beginning, it was probably more like closer to kind of the traditional um, internet demographics. So whereas we were doing primarily urban celebrities, you would think, oh, there's a bunch of black people on the site, but a lot of times it wasn't. This is the classic promise of the internet at work, particularly back in the day before it was responsible for crumbling democracies and enabling genocides. The internet could expose different people to different things. It was also, as Fred pointed out, a structural inequality at work. Fewer Black people were accessing the internet back then. Now, a lot of that in the beginning was, like I said, the internet, at least in 2006, 2007, 2008, 2009, wasn't really about phones. I mean, it really was about desktops and um, laptops. And so a lot of African-Americans, a lot of Black people really just were not on the internet then. And then I think with the advent of the smartphone, the internet became ubiquitous, and now, you know, everybody's on the internet. So now our audience, so if we're looking in the beginning, it was kind of closer to kind of traditional demographics, but heavily female. Now when we're looking at it, 
Um, we do skew a lot more African-American, so we're probably about 60% African-American. It's not that Black celebrities weren't being covered by tabloids in the aughts, but it was definitely a select number. Janet Jackson, Whitney Houston, Beyonce, and later Rihanna and the Obamas all made the cover of Us Weekly, for instance. But it wasn't all that often that you got a person of color on the cover. And that's with Us Weekly itself being run by a woman of color, Janice Min. Hollywood and its symbiotic partner, the celebrity media, defaulted to white which again played well business-wise for emergent black celebrity blogs. We talked a lot on episode two about how crazy the paparazzi photo market got during the first decade of the 2000s. Well, it turns out photos of black celebrities fetched very different prices back in the early to mid-aughts. Fred decided to use that to his advantage. So what we were able to do is we would go to the paparazzi and we would say, hey, all of the African-American celebrities that you get, any black person that you see walking into the door on this in this club, take a picture and we'll buy it. And they would be like, fine. They didn't even know who they were, right? Like they, would just, they would just say, oh, black person? Okay, boom. They'd take the photos and they would just send it to us. And would, we'd get like a, like a rough deal. Maybe they'd get, you know, 500 bucks for the Britney Spears photo and $100 for all the other photos and then $50 for literally every black person that walked in the door. And that's what they would do. They would just take all the photos of black people and they would just give it to us. They'd give us this, you know, the, the, the raw footage. And then we would look at it and we'd be like, oh, that, that, that's Gabrielle Union. You know, that's uh, Dwayne Wade. That's so-and-so. The idea that the blogs were covering black celebrities who weren't making it into mainstream tabloid coverage was a pretty simple one. Lots of traffic could be driven just by writing something basic about a famous black person who'd appeared in a big movie a decade before but hadn't been written about for a while. But the idea didn't need to be complicated to work. Early on, the stories that kind of worked the best were the stories about black celebrities that a lot of white people or a lot of people in mainstream America just didn't even know that black people had an intimate relationship with. So it would be someone like Nia Long. I think if you walked into Entertainment Tonight or, or Us Weekly, in 2007 and you said, hey, black people like Holly Berry. They'd be like, oh, of course they do, right? Because Holly Berry's an Oscar-winning actress, and she's in all these films, and blah, blah, blah. But if you told them something about someone like Nia Long, who a lot of people had grown up with, right? Like they saw her in The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, right? They've seen her in movies over and over again. She's, they, she's kind of like been a piece of their, their life for the last 20 years. And so you want to know what's going on with her. And so we would tell them. We'd say, this is what's going on with Nia Long. And you literally, for a lot of people, they literally haven't seen a, an article about Nia Long forever. Right? Like, their whole life they've known this person. They want to know more about this person. And no one knows that this person is loved and is underreported. Nia Long, Sanaa Lathan, Tracy Ellis Ross, Gabrielle Union, Beyonce, Solange... These were the celebs that blogs like Bossip and Media Takeout covered when mainstream tabloids really didn't. Or in the case of black stars like Halle Berry or Beyonce, who were making it into the mainstream tabloids occasionally, the blogs covered them a little differently. Here's Marv. I don't necessarily think it was from a more critical standpoint, but it was obviously from a more like entertainment, like oh, we're going to like kind of crack jokes about something or whatever I know back in those days, Holly Berry, that's when she was having her daughter with um, Gabriel Aubrey or something like that. <laughs> I got this guy confused with another Halle Berry boyfriend. Gabriel Aubrey is a male model who Berry later accused of calling her the N-word and trying to make their child look more white. But I feel like we covered them just in, like a humorous light. You know what I mean? I don't think it was necessarily anything where we're like super duper critical, which it might have came across as that, but it was really just kind of making jokes. Like calling Aubrey a boy toy and K-fraud, a play on K-fed, Britney Spears's ex, I'm pretty sure. But they also wrote the requisite, she looks drunk here, posts, and there were headlines like Halle Berry gets on her knees, which was about getting her star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. As Marv and others readily admit, the 2000 sense of humor was not particularly kind. 
So there's been an evolution of that tone over the course of the years. So even for me, when I think about stuff that I used to write, like back in 2006, 2007, I was like, oh my God, I would not ever be able to write anything like that in any world, shape or form currently, right? Because, you know, politically correctness and the world of sensitive Sensitivity is like a, is a whole different situation. The entire tone of the mid to late 2000s internet was kind of go hard, to quote Marv. People had that lack of filter on their meanness. The internet was a perfect magnifying glass for society's racial problems because of that. Of course, American media definitely had trouble covering stories with a race or gender angle well before the rise of the internet. Take the 2004 Super Bowl halftime controversy involving Justin Timberlake and Janet Jackson. Timberlake exposed Jackson's bare breast in a stunt gone wrong. She said he was only supposed to tear off the outermost part of her costume to reveal a lace bra. The FCC levied a $550,000 fine for the incident, and producers of the show went on to blame Jackson. It created a real cultural tizzy. Her career suffered immensely, while Timberlake's continued to skyrocket. Two years later, in 2006, Jackson went on Oprah to talk about it all. Well, Justin Timberlake recently talked about the incident. Did you know that? I I heard. Okay. On MTV. And this is some of what he said. He said, if you consider it 50-50, meaning I think that both of you are up there on the stage doing this, then I probably got 10% of the blame. I think America is harsher on women, he said. And I think America is unfairly harsh on ethnic people. So that's what he said. When the Internet got more popular, Black blogs like Bossip and Media Takeout were definitely covering Black celebrities in different, more familiar or critical ways than mainstream blogs. But at times, non-Black bloggers would write things that really don't sit well now and probably shouldn't have then. The you-can-be-really-mean-on-the-Internet permission structure got a whole other layer of fraughtness once you mixed in our society's many, many racial biases, blind spots, and hate. Lainey Louie of Lainey Gossip, who we met on the Brangelina episode, was one of those bloggers who sometimes crossed the line. In 2020, she was called out for certain old posts, like one where she referred to Janet Jackson as ghetto tits, a phrase she'd also applied to other celebs like Tara Reid, who she also called a boozing slut. Both of those posts were from 2006, and it's a harsh reminder what the tone of the internet was like back then, even from someone like Lainey, who is considered to be more sophisticated. Lainey, who is of East Asian descent, ended up writing a long mea culpa on her website, saying, among other things, that she had been conditioned in white supremacy. I asked her to think back to that era and what she thinks would have raised her antenna for a post that went too far on something like race. I think in that time, it had to be like, you know, the the conventional overt racist racism. That was like my sophistication or lack thereof at the time, where... You know, your major, un- like, unmistakably identifiable instances of it. Because back then, for me, I wasn't aware of what a microaggression was. You know, we weren't using terms, at least in the mainstream, like implicit bias. All of that. So if you ask me, was I able to see it? Then if I'm answering honestly, probably not, because that's the growth of it that 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 is what is so disappointing i and i think that's what conditioning is the 2009 tiger woods sex scandal is a pretty good example of a massive media story that had racial implications and wasn't handled in a particularly nuanced way the basic facts were that tiger woods a black man Kublinasian, by his own description, who was the most dominant athlete in an incredibly white sport, golf, was found to have cheated on his wife with many, many women. Pretty much all of them white. 
gossip ran headlines like, Tiger Woods allegedly checking into rehab for his addiction to skanky Becky backs. Woods, whose success had been championed as proof that in America you could still break down racial barriers, was suddenly treated to incredibly harsh media scrutiny. There was a lot of pearl-clutching about Tiger cheating, which, as far as I know, is a pretty common thing among professional athletes of all races and creeds. Here's Christine Brennan on CNN. We're not talking about just your average athlete here. We are talking about a cultural icon. Tiger Woods has transcended sports in a way that very few athletes do. You know, he's up there, in my mind anyway, with the Obamas and Oprah as someone who is so visible around the world and has loved, you know, hey, Kobe Bryant, other people have talked about OJ over the years, whatever, and, and the falls from grace. To me, this is the greatest fall from grace in sports we've ever seen. He lost massive endorsement deals. He was on the cover of the New York Post for 20 days in a row. The Tiger story became a vehicle for some people to express their wildly generalized, dubious, and often outright racist thoughts about Black culture. Take, for instance, Rush Limbaugh. Uh, The Black frame of mind is terrible. They're depressed. They're down. Obama's not doing anything for them. How is that hoax and change working for you? They're They're all livid. I mean, they, they thought there were going to be an exact 180-degree economic reversal, and it's done nothing but get bad for everybody. But they're especially upset about it because they look at him as one of them, and now they feel abandoned. And uh, I'm sure Tiger Woods' uh, choice of uh, females not helping him out uh, with, their, uh, with their attitudes there either. Rush is always an extreme example But there were subtler ways that bias made its way into the coverage. The Washington Post quoted Bonnie Fuller saying this, Tiger created an image of himself that is 100% at odds with the reality of his life. But, she said, eventually there will be cracks and it will come out. It's very hard to keep a giant secret life under the radar. Tabloids engaged in a kind of moral gotcha with Tiger. You're not the perfect guy you pretended to be. Of course, Why did Tiger feel like he had to be perfect? Maybe it had something to do with being the only black guy in golf and carrying a little bit of the world on his shoulders. I'll just leave you with this clip from an interview with 14-year-old Tiger, already a golf phenom. Do you you ever feel under any kind of pressure or any any kind of prejudice? Uh, I mean, golf's golf's quite often seen as an upper-class white game. Mm -hmm. Um, Do you ever feel that at all? Oh, every day. Not every day, but uh, every time I go to a major country club, always feel it. You can always sense it. Um, people are always staring at you. What are you doing here? You shouldn't be here. Media Takeout, which ended up competing with places like TMZ on certain stories, developed a reputation for publishing when a lot of other places wouldn't like when they published gruesome, never-before-seen photos of Rihanna's injuries from Chris Brown two years after the assault. TMZ published some, too, in 2009. You can no longer see Media Takeout's photos of Rihanna on the site itself. That's actually pretty common for them. The site sometimes had to take down stories because, well, they were wrong or defamatory, like when they suggested that Kim Kardashian staged being robbed in France. But that kind of we're-going-there ethos is what made people want to read it, even if it wasn't particularly journalistically responsible. Here's Kanye West in 2012 expressing some frustration at Media Takeout. A lot of times the press is trying to take everything negative. Just look at Media Takeout. They so fucking full of shit. Show your motherfucking face so I can smack the shit out you. Fred said mainstream celebrity blogs and tabloids had the same too bland tone to their coverage of black starlets. They cover Holly Berry and they'd say, hey, look how beautiful Holly Berry looked on the red carpet, which shows a beautiful on the red carpet. So that's kind of the obvious way to say, to, to talk about it, right? Like, and they wouldn't cover some of the other things that were like the things that everyone in Black America was thinking, which was, at the time at least, look, she's this incredibly beautiful woman and she'd been married all these times. Like, why, 
what's what's going on with her that's making all these men not want to be with her? Again, not a particularly nice mode of reporting. What's wrong with this woman? But that was de rigueur on the old internet. Marv and Fred both expressed a certain degree of regret for some of their writing. Marv told me there's just more empathy and a sense of humanism in today's celebrity coverage, while Fred recalled a specific instance from back in the day. There was a celebrity out there that for whatever reason, we were just having fun with her weight. And initially it was kind of fun, or funny. And then it turned not so fun. And then it just seemed like you guys are just really just tormenting this woman. Like, why? For, for what reason, right? Like it, just, it wasn't like she was doing anything. It wasn't like she was, like, doing th- the kind of things that you would, you know, um, write about. Because she was, she, she was doing things that forced herself into the news. But this is a person that just, you, she just looked away. Um, and you were just constantly just picking on her. And you could tell that it was, like, affecting her, too. We were just kind of leading the charge. And then it was kind of continuing on in other places. And it was, like, affecting her. And I remember, like, one of her, her friends just told me, like, why are you doing this? And I just, I was like, you know, why are we doing this? Like, right, like, it doesn't, doesn't feel good. It feels terrible. It's, like, the audience doesn't like it. This woman doesn't like it. Media Takeout, by the way, has been manually excluded from the Internet Archive. That means you can no longer look up old posts, and many have been removed from the website itself, which might tell you something. You know how we all now sort of revere Beyonce and Jay-Z and the mystical aura of billion-dollar success that has settled around their relationship, even with the whole cheating thing? This was not always the case. At the time, there was, there was a real age difference there, right? Like, it's, it's less so now, right, because obviously Beyonce, I think, is 40 and Jay-Z is 51 or something. So that's totally okay, and obviously it worked out in the relationship. But now you go back, you know, 15 years, and I think Jay-Z was like 31 and she was like 20, right? So now it's like, wait a second, that makes things look a little bit different. Along with the increased attention these blogs were giving to Black celebrities came criticism from some corners. In 2007, Fred was interviewed by Michelle Martin on the NPR show Tell Me More. I mean, there are still people who think that African-Americans are the poster children for all of society's dysfunction, family, breakup, infidelity, promiscuity. And I wonder if you ever think about the way your information might be received by people who are not particularly friendly toward the African-American community. I think initially I had my reservations, but the more I started doing it, the more that I realized that the real problem is that African-Americans are not really seen as human beings. We're seen as sort of characters, and that's really true with the media. When you look at a star or a celebrity couple like Beyonce and Jay-Z, the weekly magazines will, they won't really report on them. They'll just show pictures of them. They'll just say, well, look at Beyonce and Jay-Z doing this, doing that. You can hear Fred making a lot of the same points he made to me 14 years later. Marv told me that she had a lot of black celebrities who were ticked with her. I feel like it's either, like, they love gossip or they hate it, right? So it's, like, never any in-between. But, you know, just like the previous person I was talking about, he, like, loved gossip. Marv didn't want to use this person's name, but he's an A-list celebrity. He was like, that shit is hilarious. Y'all are freaking geniuses. You know what I mean? I love it and I get it. Um, But then there would be people who would even not love it so much and, you know, really be like, you're tearing down the Black community and you're doing this and you're doing that. The fact that legacy publications like Ebony, Essence, and Jet were more celebratory of Black celebs in that classic celebrity cooperative way, a la People magazine, meant that some people didn't understand what the Black blogs were going for. Marv said she certainly chafed at the comparison to Black legacy media. I feel like it was always like, oh, but they would never do that. And you guys are just like (laughs) saying whatever, which it was. That's what we're like. Well, we're saying what your dirty little mind is thinking, but you're too scared to say, basically. You know what I mean? So, yeah, yeah. It's just a form of free speech. The dynamic of Black celebrities being irritated at Black celebrity blogs is still very much at play today. 
Here's Cardi B back in 2019 talking about how pissed she is at the Shade Room for its, well, shady coverage of people in her orbit. Back in the day, TMZ used to report about Angelina Jolie, Brad Pitt, all these Caucasian celebrities, all these celebrity actors. Now all they do is post about hip-hop artists, people that's in the black entertainment business, because black blogs capitalize of black entertainers' drama. Y'all barely post positive shit about us, so why would a white blog post positive shit about us? The Shade Room, an Instagram gossip aggregator, is black-focused. It's also one of the most prolific and popular celebrity outlets on social media. It's an unmitigated success story in the most important emerging space in media. Which, Fred says, is the whole point. That Black blogs should be competing in the mainstream, not off to the side. The media takeout is not doing anything different. It hasn't been done, you know, in the blog world by CMZ and, and, and Prince Hilton. Before that, in the, in the, in the, in the print world, Us Weekly and, and In Touch. Before that, and you know, in, in a current affair. Before that, in the National Enquirer. Like, it, this, is, this is how it's done. There is a framework. It's a foundation. It's, it's, there's a playbook for how this is done. And I'm just following the playbook. I'm just following it with a bunch of black faces on the cover in the, in the magazine. You can't ask someone to not do it because if you don't do it, then it's not like black people gain. Black people just lose, right? Like we would just lose. We would, right now, in the world of celebrity gossip, we have a place. It's not just that black gossip media has a place. It's also that blogs like Bossip and Media Takeout arguably played an outsized role in helping create one of the biggest media phenoms of the past 20 years. I got into styling because my best friend is Brandy, and um, we'd always shop together. She'd always ask me to be, you know, oh, you have to help me out, be my stylist, and I just... That's Kim Kardashian in 2006 talking to E! about her early career as a stylist and closet organizer to the stars. Here's Marv. Kim Kardashian, I think that we were like the first people to really like kind of really post a lot about her, specifically because she dated a lot of black men. When I asked Marv and Fred about the stars who consistently drove traffic to their site, they named Beyonce and Kim Kardashian. Marv said that when Bossip posted Kim's sex tape with Ray J, it was probably one of the site's highest traffic days. That's because everyone had an opinion about Kim. Lots of them bad. In the beginning, they hated her, right? Like, oh my God, this woman is just doing anything for fame. She has no talent. She's just, you know, she's selling a porno tape. Um, How, what is she doing? She's dating all these black people and just using them for whatever. But Kim Kardashian knew how to stay in the news. She reached out. She was like, hey, you know, I noticed you guys have a lot of opinions about me. (laughs) Why don't we do an interview and maybe we can like, you know, build a relationship and all that. So we did the interview, which I think ended up getting quoted multiple times in different media outlets back in the day. Um, But yeah, we had a conversation. We, you know, ended up connecting because we were both Libras and we were both the same age. So it went well and it was, you know, able to build a relationship with her. Kim was savvy about her famous-for-nothing fame. She cultivated relationships. But she also benefited from what Fred chalked up to the ever-diversifying tastes of the internet-reading public. And he thinks Black media's role in broadening popular tastes played no small part in that. Diversity doesn't just, like, bloop, come and say, oh, you know, we didn't have it yesterday, and, you know, now we're just getting better and it just shows up. No, because you're reinforcing a lot of kind of what you're going to do in the future by saying what worked in the past. So, hey, we, you know, we find, we, we realized that there, hey, there's a lot of um, thin blonde stars do really well. And so you'll find that the next thin blonde star that comes out, everyone will jump on her and say, oh, wow, we have to get the next thin blonde star. And then, you know, you have someone like Kim Kardashian come out there and, and you know, people just don't, you don't really make that adjustment. Black blogs helped change celebrity talent scouting. Media was covering the people who lots of people were interested in, for better or for worse, not just who the traditional gatekeepers cared about. And that would make all the difference in the years to come. Just ask Kim Kardashian. Next week on Just Like Us. 
Kim literally studied Spidey. I will take her to court if she'd like to. And when she's a lawyer, she can represent herself. And she's like, no, I don't think you understand. She's like, you have a huge hit on your hand. She's like, we do not get reactions like this on anything that we ever test. If someone is repeatedly put on TV and said, they're a successful businessman, it just becomes the truth. And people start to believe it. And it doesn't matter if it's real or people don't want to be bogged down with like the facts. Oh, well, sure. Maybe this, this, this make that completely not the case, but I saw it on TV. And it doesn't surprise me that we ended up with a president who wasn't at all what the image was supposed to be. Just like us, the tabloids that changed America was written and reported by me, Claire Malone with story editing by Amanda Dobbins. The show was executive produced by Juliet Littman and Sean Fennessy. Our producers are Amanda Dobbins, Kaya McMullen, and Vikram Patel. Sound design and engineering by Hans Dale Shee. The music is from Epidemic Sound and Blue Dot Sessions. Copy editing was done by Craig Gaines and fact-checking by Juliana Ress. Our art director is David Shoemaker. Illustration by Michael Weinstein. Special thanks to Chelsea Stark-Jones, Kellen B. Coates, and Eric Jenkins. Thanks for listening. This episode is brought to you by 20th Century Studios' Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. As a ruthless king builds his empire at the expense of the remaining human race, a young ape will fight for the future of apes and humans alike. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes, enter the kingdom in IMAX on May 10th, and in theaters everywhere. Get tickets now. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.